thank you everybody for um, bearing with us. Although one of my colleagues, who shall be nameless, just said, will you be finished by the football? <laughs> so we have a little live feed for him, or maybe a feedback TV, so you can keep in touch. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to talk in this section about discursive practices. And in the first slot before the break, I was arguing for, as you heard, a kind of relational ontology. Um, but of course, if one wants to analyse this kind of in-between stuff that we're all so interested and fascinated by, and real social interaction, like the Big Brother fragment that I showed you, so we're going to need more elaborated theories of this material and methods for its systematic analysis. And the route for this, I believe, is through studying language and through studying discourse. So I'm arguing that language is the primary relational intersubjective medium. And language or discourse carries collective history and culture with it. It's also an extremely potent form of social action. And it's the medium through which people construct their worlds, produce themselves, and interact with each other. So in this 15-minute slot, what I want to do is, is to focus on my work on discursive practices and this search for theories and methods of discourse analysis, which would make an effective kind of social psychology. And this is the work that I've done with Jonathan Potter, and very importantly with Nigel Edley, who I'm really pleased to say can be here today as well, and with colleagues like Derek Edwards, Mick Billig, Charles Antaki, Susan Condor, Ross Gill, Pam Shakespeare, Sarah Seymour-Smith, Stephanie Taylor, and Liz Stokoe. And unlike the discursive turn in cultural studies, you know, sort of bet noir, intake of breath. Um, our discursive turn in social psychology has been a highly empirical kind of exercise. So it's been about trying to actually do things with data, with interview transcripts, records of talk, uh, and text directly. And to a large extent, I think we, along with the sociolinguists, the conversation analysts, the grounded theorists, the thematic analysts, and the narrative analysts, have really succeeded now, so that qualitative data analysis looks substantially different from what it did 20 years ago. So if you think back 20 years to what you would do with qualitative data in those early 80s or late 70s, there were only three things, really, that we knew how to do. We either tried to translate it into numbers through some kind of content analysis, or, you know, you tended, as cultural studies people still do, treat it as kind of neutral. <laughs> Actually, it's the last thing they do. But the, the middle thing is uh, something else. They're treating it as sort of neutral objective reports of mental states or true descriptions of events, realism in other words. Or, you know, the other thing that we would do 20 years back was to kind of quote bits from interviews as illustration and just present them as like, you know, confirmatory stories from those various sort of front lines where we were working. So I think what we have now are some further sorts of possibilities. And one of my particular concerns in discourse analysis has been to try and work out a way between uh, or putting together ethnomethodology and conversation analysis and post-structuralist Foucauldian discourse analysis. You can see the heroes. And that's between Foucault and Garfinkel which is rather an odd place <laughs> for 
for a girl to be. <laughs> I think if, I, if I'd known at three years old where I'd end up, you know, I might not have done so. Okay, so from Foucault, what I've tried to do is take, you know, very much take on board that notion of discourse as organized by institutional forms of intelligibility in a sense of discourse as having a history and as imbricating power relations. From Garfinkel, what we've tried to do is take that emphasis on talk as action-oriented and that notion of social order as constituted intersubjectively as participants display to each other their understanding of what's going on. Okay. What I want to do now is just to pick out a few of the kind of analytic concepts that we've tried to to develop around this. So analytic concepts which try and preserve the sense of the bigger picture and pick up the fine grain movement of talk on the ground. And one of the things that I spent most time working on is what you could call regularities and performative content. And following Mike Mulcahy and Nigel Gilbert, Jonathan Potter and I called these interpretive repertoires. Rosie Bradotti, the feminist theorist, has a really lovely and evocative way of capturing the focus here, I think. What she does is talk about the traffic jam of meanings at the city gates, which creates that form of pollution known as common sense. Okay, so it's about ways of finding, finding ways of talking about analyzing and just dissecting various traffic jams of meaning. So take a look at the next extract. Now this certainly has a strong smell. You know, this, is, this stuff is the kind of diesel fumes of that traffic jam. And it comes from the work that I did on everyday um, ordinary white middle class racism in New Zealand. And this is a white male New Zealander in his 40s talking. I'll leave you just to read it. Okay, that, I mean, it's a particularly densely arranged set of meanings. I think what the speaker is doing is jamming together about four or five different interpretive repertoires, the practical argumentative resources of his community, including at the end this kind of history is inevitably bloody, so what's the problem kind of analysis. What he's doing is combining repertoires in context for a particular rhetorical purpose. And I'm not going to try and disentangle those separate ideological threads and separate interpretive repertoires here. But I just want to make the point that everyday discourse is like this. It's full of these little conflations, these jumbled hints of bigger discursive structures, these kind of one-word tropes that sum up a whole argumentative history. And also that interpretive repertoires are not intrinsically reactionary, intrinsically ideologically, ideological or intrinsically racist. It's all about performance and use and the making and practice. <coughs> it's for that reason that we've preferred to use the term interpretive repertoires rather than take on board Foucault's notion of big discourse or discursive formation. Because what we found when we and other people have analysed this kind of traffic jam of meaning is intense variability. The practical argumentative resources of a community have some internal logic or coherence, but that coherence is temporary and disrupted as it comes into conjunction with other repertoires 
and is arranged into dilemmas. And of course, the great thing about everyday discourse, the thing that makes it so powerful ideologically, is that despite some huge pressures for individual consistency, nothing adds up for long. So what we did, of course, was to argue that these kinds of discursive features had some very important implications for social psychological work on attitudes and public opinion. Well, Nick Billig and his colleagues coined that term ideological dilemmas and made similar arguments for the sociological study of ideology. Okay, another kind of pattern and form of order that's very evident in discourse is the process of positioning, of constructing a self as one speaks. And what I want to do now is just pick up briefly that concept of subject position and then conclude by mentioning um, or coming back to this debate between Wendy and myself around psychoanalysis and discourse theory. <coughs> so if you take a look at this extract, and this comes from the research on masculinity that I did with Nigel Edley. Again, I'll give you just a minute to read it. Okay, so again, a very complex extract, and there's not time to do much justice to it. But before the break, Anne was talking about interpolation. And I think what we're beginning to understand is how multi-layered interpolation is. So here's Simon talking about his identity as a northern man. And he's talking about that kind of cultural slot of northern, working-class masculinity. But as Anne has often reminded me when we've been working on data together, in interviews, people talk about their identity, but as they talk, they also do identity work. So Simon is talking about a particular masculine style. But for a space there in the middle of the extract, he's animating or authoring the style or positioning himself in relation to it in a way that I would like to describe as imaginary. You know, the bit where he says, we're an invading army, like, and he you know, has a little image around that. Now, so what do I mean by an imaginary subject position there? <coughs> imaginary has all kinds of connotations. What I mean by it is that for a moment there, Simon is totally aligned with, totally identified with, completely invested in heroic masculinity. He becomes that voice. He speaks in that voice. He is coincident with that image. And there's echoes here almost of the Wild West. You know, you can see the saloon doors kind of crashing back and the contractors sort of swaggering into the southern pub. In fact, you probably see it just all too often, really. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like this picture a lot, which Nigel and I used on the cover of one of our books, because you have that same sort of sense of a narcissistic, imaginary pool of hegemonic masculinity. Where the hard men are sort of coming into town. So one mode of positioning then, or one kind of subject positioning that you see quite often, I think, in everyday discourse, is this moment, often quite temporary, often quite fragmentary, of total identification and investment with a cultural slot with no remainder. But that is, of course, not the only kind of positioning work that you see going on. If we look back at that extract, if you just take a look at the last couple of lines, for example. I think there's a very different feel there, Simon saying. I think, in reality, the Southerners are no more wimps than we are, but there's a bit of, yeah, we like to think we're more manly, possibly, than them. There's a different kind of voice there. 
and to pick up the kind of Saxonian reading that my colleague Janet Mabin developed in her work on discourse, you can see that Simon's eye is no longer totally invested. It's become reflexive, self-dissecting, self-evaluative, doubled, and distanced. Now, what I want to maintain is that both of those quite subtle positionings in relation to cultural identity position are best analysed with ethno-methods. And that's the sense of method that I used before the break. These are what we've been calling psychodiscursive practices. So they're not necessarily mysterious or expressive outpourings of some deep psyche. They're just simply procedures. They're routines. They're things that people know how to do. Okay, here's a sort of summary of the subject position argument. So psychodiscursive practices, therefore, play a central role in the constitution of subjectivity. What it means to be a person, the formulation of an internal life, an identity, and a way of being in the world, develop as those ethno-methods move inside to form what James Birch calls the voices of the mind. So what I'm arguing for is that subjectivity and identity are best understood as the personal enactment of communal methods of self-accounting, vocabularies of motive, culturally recognisable emotional performances, and available stories for making sense. Now these methods that we can see here for positioning are deeply personal and deeply psychological as well. Okay, so that's the sense of positioning that I've been working with um, for quite a while now. How does that lead to a debate with Wendy? Um, people are saying actually they like the fact that we're arguing with each other. <laughs> we're sort of up the pace a bit now. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you can see immediately how the clash develops. Because one of the very important threads in Wendy's work is the argument that discourse theory is not enough. You know, that underneath the flow of discourse, there are the unconscious drives, the identifications, the repetitions, the acts of repression, the strong hidden feelings and so on, which are discussed by psychoanalysis. The surface of discourse is a kind of chimera conditioned by real psychic and emotional depth. Well, I think it's certainly the case that in discursive psychology, we need to think a lot more about emotion, investment, family histories, and how internal voices and subjectivity are socialized. But I'm also quite strongly resisting the psychoanalytic account. And as Wendy said, psychoanalysis has had its own discursive turn. But that discursive turn, I think, was through the work of Lacan and more recently through Judith Butler's philosophy. It's been highly abstract. It's never been grounded very much in empirical practice and empirical work, and it's been an intensely philosophical meditation on discourse. I think psychoanalysis has not yet got to grips with all the empirical work on language that's happened in the last 20 years or so <coughs> on everyday talk. And as a result, it stayed with a kind of straw man theory of discourse. So Foucault is the interlocutor, not Garfinkel. But the empirical discursive work that we and you know, sociolinguists and narrative analysts have done has, I think, really some major consequences for traditional psychological concepts and particularly for traditional psychoanalytic concepts. As Nick Villica showed for the concepts of unconscious and repression, we can't think those in the same way anymore. 
And I think that's true now for planning and concepts like identification, projection, the depressive position, and so on. So what I'm trying to do is persuade Wendy to think about discourse a bit more and trying to build a bridge from which some kind of useful hybrid concepts might emerge. And that's what we argue about and with Stephen Frosch as well. You know, what might identification look like as a discursive phenomenon? What does it look like as narrative, for example? But it's not a debate that, you know, I can say any more about or go into in any more depth now if we do want to watch the football later. So <laughs> Wendy's going to return to it and in the meantime Anne's going to pick up um, the importance in her work of everyday life and social policy. Okay. Everything that we've talked about so far has dealt with the importance of the everyday, everyday examples, and so on. Studying the everyday, as Margie made clear just now, is crucial to a new and uh, social, new social psychology that deals with things that, that are important in life. We've also been implicitly talking about our epistemological commitments, and this debate between Margie and Wendy is, is one that you can see is fueled by epistemological commitments. One epistemological commitment that I think is also often implicitly there, but that as social scientists, as social psychologists, we often omit, is to do with the policy relevance and how it relates to the everyday. And I think that often people underplay how important thinking about policy relevance is to the work that they're doing that engages with the everyday. And I think the work done in the social policy discipline here demonstrates that well. There's some really interesting and cutting-edge research that demonstrates how, how um, policy needs to think through more theoretical engagement. So what I want to do is to move on to think a bit more about that. And my 10 years working at the Thomas Coram Research Unit, which is part of the Institute of Education, um, University of London, under the directorship of Barbara Tizard, have been formative in helping me think through these issues, understand them rather more, and to understand what makes for high quality research that's policy relevant. And I think that, I hope that by the end of this bit, you'll see that through the two examples that I want to give, that high quality policy relevant research addresses all those theoretical, epistemological issues that we're grappling with here. Well, Thomas Coram was found, oh, that's the Thomas Coram Research Unit, I'm going to call it TCRU, otherwise it will get confusing. Um, it was founded in 1973 by Jack Tizard. It was founded particularly to do research relevant to the care, health and well-being of children, young people and their families. And when he was president of the British Psychological Society in 1976, Jack Tizard said, and I'm only going to quote a little bit, but Basically, he was saying that the study of real problems would produce major advances in the social sciences. That was his belief. He also argued strongly that we have to take a sceptical approach to knowledge. And I think that subsequent developments in the social sciences have certainly proved him right. The developments in discourse analysis that Margie's just been talking about have taken as their starting point what Jack Tizard would have called the study of real problems even though um, he was certainly not a discourse analyst. And discourse analysis 
has had enormous methodological and theoretical impact on the social sciences, and I would argue on how we view policy relevant issues. For example, research that's been done by Mick Billig, by Toyn Van Dyke, by Margie and Jonathan Potter, have helped us to see the work that people are doing when they use apparently really simple phrases such as, I'm not prejudiced, but okay. And as a result, discourse analysts, I would argue, have helped to challenge powerfully the notion that racism is simply embodied in a few particular people. Instead, they've made us see how much more complex it is to think about something as, as large scale as racism, and that we have to take seriously what Margie said just now, people's inconsistency and variability. So that I think that these two things can come together, the thinking theoretically and the policy relevance. My first piece of research at Thomas Corp, at TCRU, as I said I would call it, was a study of mothers under 20 that was devised by Peter Moss to obtain the funding for it. The study demonstrated both how openness to new ideas and the skeptical approach that Jack Tizard advocated could contribute to new understanding that make sense for policy. At that time, it was very much taken for granted that women who became pregnant and had children when they were under 20 were necessarily problematic. However, when we looked at the literature closely, it became clear that the young women were being constructed, socially constructed in opposing ways. And at one and the same time, people were saying things about them that couldn't hold. So on the one hand, they were becoming pregnant through ignorance because they didn't know any better and they couldn't help it. And on the other, they were becoming pregnant on purpose because they wanted to get instrumental benefits, housing, welfare benefits, or benefits through having a child care for them, love them. So making up for deficiencies in their own lives. Their impoverished socioeconomic background and their educational histories were routinely cited. But these background factors, in quotes, were rarely theorized. And often, Although they were antecedents, they were taken to be outcomes, they were treated as outcomes in the literature. The policy focus, therefore, was on relatively cheap and easy interventions, such as improving sex education and the provision of contraception. Now, I have no problems with either of those. I mean, both of those are laudable aims in their own ways, but they're certainly not sufficient to the task of improving outcomes because they don't address crucial issues. And what's alarming is the way that those very solutions keep cropping up in things that, for example, the Teenage Pregnancy Unit is doing now. So the findings of the study that we did then illuminated what I consider are some key epistemological commitments in policy-relevant research. First of all, a focus on deconstruction, and again, related to what Marty said rather differently, is this interrogating of the taken for granted thinking about the smells that common sense produces, if you take a Rosie Bridoffy view. In this case, the case of mothers under 20, a predisposition to see young mothers as a social problem, together with a realist epistemology, tended to fuel the tendency to generalize from extreme cases, rather than to take a broader and more engaged look at them. So mothers under 20 again and again were treated as deficient, so then the second point there, I coined the term normalized absence, pathologized presence, really to express how problematized groups are often rendered invisible 
when the normal is being studied, but are focused on again and again when um, anything problematic is being studied. And that is something we need to de deconstruct, I think, so bringing the two together. And this raises the whole issue of power relations. Who has the power to define social problems? Who has the power to resist such definitions? When is it possible to resist? Where is it possible to resist? If, as Wendy argues, we should theorize the unconscious as psychosocial, then policy-relevant research shows that we need to understand the ways in which the unconscious is always imbued with power relations. So again, the macrosocial is important. And as Margie has shown just now, I think rather powerfully, discourse analysis has been particularly useful in helping us to address these first two points. So then the third point, the impact of social positioning. What became clear from that study is that social positioning affects the stories that researchers tell and that other people tell as well. In other words, since researchers are not value neutral, the stories that they tell means that, that they, they tell different sorts of stories, different sorts of researchers tell different sorts of stories. Their positioning matters too. And that means that one of the slogans, or almost slogans, that, that many people use now, no knowledge from nowhere, is really important. That we have to think about the ways that researchers themselves are positioned in understanding why they're invested in producing certain sorts of explanations. And that matters just as much as looking for the variability in what research participants say. It's also the case that insiders and outsiders to a situation often produce different stories, but that also that insiders differentiate themselves one from another according to their histories, their social positioning, and their investments. And it was, it was common for the mothers that we studied then to say that they were really deserving, but that it was the others, the other mothers under 20, who were really problematic. And then finally, differential racialization. It didn't take much reading of the literature to see that black mothers under 20 were treated very differently from how white mothers under 20 were treated. So in the literature again and again, the explanation for women becoming mothers under 20, if they were black, was related to the fact that it was their cultures produced them like that. Okay. It was their culture. But if white women became mothers under 20, as they do, then that was in attributed to their individual psychological failings, not to their cultural deficiencies. Now, it wasn't that any of these four issues were discovered for the first time in the project or haven't been illuminated again, but that studying, thinking theoretically about policy-relevant work sharpens theoretical foci and also helps us see how we can really address issues that people consider our problems and indeed to deconstruct the notion of some things being problems in the first place. And these issues are, of course, not confined to policy-relevant work. But perhaps not surprisingly, the book that I wrote from that piece of research was called Young Mothers with a Question Mark. The question mark to put at issue the taken-for-granted notion that women under 20 are automatically too young to be mothers. And what's perhaps slightly dispiriting is that uh, 20 years on, no, I'm making myself a little older than I am, 10 years on perhaps, <laughs> but um, uh, research that's just recently been done by the YWCA finds some of the same problems in how 
mothers under 20 are treated. And therefore, they have started to campaign for respecting young mothers. So there's a respect young mothers, young mums, they call it, campaign that you can see there. Well, while TCRU certainly had a critical influence on my thinking about the everyday and policy relevance, my history as a black woman who'd grown up in Britain also played a part. And it played a part in making me skeptical of taken for granted assumptions, particularly those that constructed people as social problems. For example, as an undergraduate, I once had the privilege, I'm being sarcastic, of sitting in a lecture theater with 240 white students while the lecturer told us matter-of-factly that black people are 20 intelligent quotient points behind white people. That was that, okay? just a fact. I have to say that I didn't like the experience. And what I did as a tiny act of resistance was to choose the topic for my essay and to write about it uh, using the literature that already existed then uh, that deconstructed that notion. I got a first-class mark for it, which I was very pleased about, but the lecturer never returned it, which, you know, in these days of handwriting, I'd like to see now quite what I did make of it. And I learned more about resisting negative policy construction from being in the Race Today collective, from working with people such as John LaRose and Sarah White, who I'm pleased to say are in the audience today, and from being in a feminist consciousness-raising group. Those experiences showed me that differential positioning affects the construction of particular groups, as well as those with power to define social problems and to devise solutions. It seemed, therefore, important to me that research should not simply accept and start from social problems, but be open to new understandings and sometimes produce competing explanations. One has to ask, policy relevant for whose benefit, relevant to whom? And equally, when social science researchers issue policy-relevant research, I think one has to ask which power relations benefit by being left unmarked. And in the audience, there are people who've done amazing policy-relevant research. I'd pick out Fiona Williams and Janet Holland, along with the department here, which I think has done that. But there are many other studies that, that um, do so from without a policy-relevant um, framework that I think are worth mentioning at least a few of them are worth mentioning now. Wendy's research with Tony Jefferson, I think, was helpful in using new methodologies to research what she calls the defended subjects and showing by doing that, by using these new methodologies, by theoretically engaging with the work, that men are sometimes as fearful as women are about crime. So whereas we've thought that women are frightened that they'll be the victims of crime, this isn't always the case. Men are sometimes equally frightened. Gay Lewis showed that black women social workers employ shifting and contradictory racialized identities in their everyday practices so that we can't think of them as always employing the same strategies, of all, as always thinking of themselves in the same way. And Ros Gill showed, in some ways quite amusingly, in other ways quite sad, uh, how male disc jockeys could naturalize the exclusion of female DJs by simply saying that these women have inappropriate voices and they have them whether they're too shrill or too husky and sexy. Okay, so whatever they did, it was wrong. And I think those sorts of words, theoretically engaged, have relevance uh, for policy that's important. And I want briefly to use the study that I did with Stephen Frosch and Rob Patman 
on masculinities in 11 to 14 year old boys to provide another example. Briefly, what, what is happening at the moment around boys and masculinity is that there's a great deal of concern about the fact that boys are not keeping pace with girls in terms of their educational attainment. That and their propensity for violence means that there's almost a subdued moral panic about masculinities. The proposed solution to these concerns, and many people try to find solutions, tends either to focus on technical solutions, things like changing the curriculum, changing the teaching styles, changing the classroom organisation, or they focus on, on finding ways to get boys, to persuade boys to give up their lavish behaviour, their anti-SWAT behaviour. And I think those solutions are not surprising in a neoliberal economic system that has at its heart values of competition, individual responsibility, assessment and managerialism. But when you look in more detail at boys' everyday practices, you can't help but see a more complex picture. And many researchers, I think, are producing a complex picture. And Margie has done this in her work with Nigel Edley for a slightly older age group too. Well, our research was policy relevant in contributing to understanding that really that's too simplistic, that's, that those solutions are too simplistic. Basically, we found that the demands of masculinity mean that in boys' communities of practice, school is not simply about learning. It's equally about managing social relations. Boys spend a great deal of time and effort practicing strategies that will allow them to do some schoolwork, but still be seen as masculine enough. And so for that reason, they have to spend a lot of time and effort avoiding being seen as serious about schoolwork. And if you look at this PowerPoint, it shows that how boys, and many boys did this, negotiated for themselves a middle position between being, being seen as working too hard and um, doing no work at all and hence possibly failing. So I'll just read a bit from what Julia says. He says, I used to mess about and then at home just study, and now I do both. I can mess about and study at the same time. So no, I don't get to. And so that's the way he's found. Bob, no, not really. In class, I don't do all my work. Sometimes I do nothing. The only people who are cuffed are two Turkish boys. They always sit in the front and do all their work. And when someone cuffes them, they don't do anything about it. Well, understanding how we can achieve gender equality in schools requires that we consider the reasons that boys are not entirely free to choose to behave in ways that would improve their educational attainment. And this is partly, as I've said already, because boys have to manage the present. They're not just future orientated, they can't be. We put them in school and they have to spend a great many hours negotiating with each other and, and being just in school. So boys are often competing with each other just to be accepted as sufficiently masculine, not competing with each other to get the best grades. Everyday practices of masculinity at school militated against the boys' ability to comply with what are neoliberal demands to work hard at school, to take the chances that are offered, to be responsible for their own success or failure. And at its best, I would argue that a policy-relevant focus on everyday practices is able to engage with the lives of those who are often rendered invisible 
by academic work or rendered invisible because they're viewed through essentialist lenses. So good policy relevant work does the opposite of what Ralph Ellison is explaining in The Invisible Man when he says at the end here, I'm invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. I'm going to hand over now to Wendy. And Wendy's going to try and draw it all together, what a small order, by discussing the elements of a study that we're just starting that aims to provide new psychosocial insights and so draws on both language-based approaches and new ways of attempting to engage with the psychoanalytic while avoiding issuing policy relevance. Small order. Okay. <laughs> right, well this is the last change of gear then um, in the main part of here. And um, like, like Margie, actually, I'm going to concentrate quite a lot on methods where it's no coincidence. We're all trained as psychologists and we must take methods very seriously indeed. But before that, um, I just want to say a little bit about, in a sense, how I got to this, this particular study. Um, this, my work has taken many substantive directions, all concerned with developing a genuinely psychosocial psychology. Um, and it's no coincidence that in all of this, that after I became a mother, some of my research and writing has taken mothering identity as a focus. It's another example of including my own subjectivity um, in research. But one of the uh, trajectories through that was when I was at the University of Leeds, which was until about four years ago, I got involved in a large ESRC funded program called Care, Values and the Future of Welfare. Um, its director, Fiona, is right in front of me over there, and Sasha is there too, um, involved in it. And what that meant for me, from my perspective, was trying to start to work out what it would mean to pursue a psychosocial approach to care, to complement the dominant one, which concentrates on the social resources and supports that carers require. Um, <clears throat> and by doing so, tends to assume that if these are provided, people will naturally know how to care, or at any rate, they'll learn through practice. And in fact, now this is applied to men as well as women and fathers as well as mothers. Object relation psychoanalysis suggests not, that that wouldn't be the case. It suggests that um, early experience of being cared for, starting from the time when the self is unformed in the ways that I talked about in the first part, um, is crucial to the capacity to care for others and for self, actually, in later life. In the book that I'm currently writing, I develop this approach in detail uh, I examine its implications for um, maternal subjectivity, um, for men's equal involvement in parenting, for feminist debates about gendered subjectivity and the ethic of care, and for political debates about caring across distance and difference. And that work uh, is, is the precursor to the research project that uh, Anne and I are just beginning with Heather Elliott, who started yesterday as our research fellow and who is, is in the audience, and with Cathy Irwin funded under the ESRC Identities Programme. Um, so before the break, um, I, I was focusing on theorising subjectivity from a psychosocial perspective. Um, and there's another whole series of implications, really, that for several years now I've been equally fascinated by. And they're the implications of a psychosocial perspective for methodology, for how we find out what we know how we can set up research that illuminates such a complex subject as identity. 
Our project is actually about how women acquire a new identity on becoming mothers for the first time. Um, the research has significant policy connections, um, which Anne didn't have time to talk about. Um, and I think you can probably imagine from what she's just said how that would actually um, impinge and, and will actually affect how we do what we do. But I'm going to talk about it from a methodological point of view here. <clears throat> Qualitative social science research methodology has grown and prospered over the decades that I've been a researcher, but it has moved in a rather language-dependent direction, and Margie's said some of that and has already um, sort of prefigured uh, how, I would, how I would talk about that um, as a result. She said uh, that language is the primary relational medium. Well, yes. <laughs> But it tends to drown out other media, like emotional intersubjectivity and the communication of bodies. Like most other qualitative researchers, we three conduct interviews. And this relies on finding out things from our participants through what they can say about their lives, actions, experiences, themselves. In this current research, we are asking about how women experience the major identity changes involved in the transition to motherhood. Interviews with new mothers can tell us quite a bit about this, and I shall say a bit more about this style of interview. But interviews might not be enough, because if significant aspects of subjectivity are hidden from a person's own self, as I would argue, and there is inner conflict which precipitates unconscious defences against coming to know certain aspects of one's own experience, then straightforward semi-structured interviewing on its own tends to produce a partial and distorted knowledge of subjectivity. We cannot reach those parts. Um, and, and the distorted knowledge that uh, um, semi-structured interviewing tend, uh, will be likely to produce, will, it'll recognize what's conscious, discourse-based, intentional, and coherent. But I think it's likely to miss the unconscious the conflicted, the sometimes irrational, often more relational side of the person participating in the research. And in this way, methods have been profoundly implicated in producing the depleted versions um, of the individual that have predominated in social science research. I cannot stress enough how important it is that the methods are complex enough to do justice to the complexity of subjectivity and identities. And I think often they have not been Tony Jefferson and I, in our book on psychosocial methodology, called the research subject the defended subject to reflect this theory of subjectivity and tried to work out uh, a method that was adequate to a defended theorization of subjectivity. So it's in recognition of these kinds of methodological challenges that one of the main themes in the Mothering Identities Project is methodological. What methods are powerful enough to illuminate the profoundly relational, complex, partly inarticulable, identity-shaking experience of becoming a mother for the first time. We'll be using two methods. The first is the free association narrative interview that Tony Jefferson and I developed. <clears throat> um, the core idea is that through encouraging a relatively uninterrupted narrative about specific life events, the interviewer can facilitate the free associations of the interviewees. These involve links in the narrative 
but are not based on the formal properties of chronology, logic, or narrative sequence, but on meanings that owe their connections to their emotional significance in the life experiences of the narrator. In this way, although the, the method's language-based still, it's designed to go beyond the characteristics of an account based on the conscious, where intentionality, rationality, and coherence that are often foregrounded and then characterize the vision of subjectivity produced by interview methods. The second method goes further. For the first time in funded social science research, as far as we know, we're borrowing the method of infant observation that's particularly been developed over 50 years at the Tavistock Clinic, and yet we're trying to apply that to a social science research context. Of course, there's no getting away from language in any research method, but this one defers the application of language um, to the observer's experience. It puts it back in the, in the meaning that they make of what they're seeing as observers. The method is psychoanalytic, predictably, maybe, in its way of understanding the infant-mother relationship, and so emphasizing the relationality of this unit in the early development of the infant self is consistent with our ontology as well. <clears throat> it's also psychoanalytic in its epistemology, in its view of how the researcher can know what she's observing. Um, the observer, in addition to taking detailed notes of the hour long, once every week, over a whole year or two in the Tavistock method, in, the ob in those ob observation sessions of the baby and mother and others who are involved in the care as well. The researcher observers are also part of a regular seminar group led by a psychoanalytically trained professional in which they explore their subjective responses concerning the relationship which they are observing as it develops along the way. I talked about subjectivity before the break, and this is a related usage of the idea of subjectivity, the use of the observer's subjectivity as a research tool. This is a radical departure from the principle of objectivity that psychologists have espoused as part of their identification with the ideal of scientific method. The term subjectivity has had in that tradition very derogatory connotations. To be subjective has meant to be biased, partial, unreliable. But this usage comes from its opposition to the scientific notion of objectivity, which has been comprehensively discredited, but especially in critical social science. Does using your subjectivity as a researcher have to make your meanings unreliable then, your findings unreliable? No. Rather, it means that it's inevitable that researchers like other people, use all the resources of their experience and understanding to make sense of what they're looking into, and should do. These resources, fortunately, include emotional knowing. Psychoanalysis again, has again pioneered the way here in its methodology, um, through training that helps to make the analyst a sensitive and receptive instrument for other people's meanings and experiences, both spoken and unspoken, and to recognize the difference between the meanings that the uh, receiver is imposing on them from the ones that are being uh, communicated um, from, in this case, it would be the research participants. The theoretical understanding of this kind of emotional knowing can help turn the use of subjectivity, which stereotypically has been derogated as characteristic of women's and not men's ways of knowing, into a legitimate research resource as opposed to a suspect and shameful aspect of irrational functioning which researchers must pursue. 
Let me give you a brief example that is bound to occur in our mother-baby observations. We've all been dependent and vulnerable infants and all identify unconsciously as well as consciously with the baby being observed as well as with its mother as the adult player. Try that one out. We all therefore will project parts of our own experience, often the unthought known experience, in understanding what is happening. And we'll do this from week to week um, in the observations during the research. The seminar can help us to unravel this and has shown itself in the Tavistock training to be quite a powerful and reliable method of using the subjectivity of the, of the observers in the service of a fuller, more convincing, complex, refined knowledge of the developing infant in relation. Our challenge is to use the same observational scenario to understand about the developing mother in relation. However, our project is not solely psychoanalytic. It is psychosocial. We're not just looking at the mother or the mother in relation to her new baby. We're looking at three different ethnic groups of mothers in the same disadvantaged borough of London. Bangladeshi, African Caribbean and white British mothers. At the same time as experiencing something universal and timeless, mainly creating a new life and finding that one is responsible for that life, which has been part of me and now is primarily reliant on me, we intend to look at the cultural differences in the experience of becoming a mother, a mother situated within different relationships and practices and values and expectations. Social science research has rightly become sensitive to the power relations that characterise research, and Anne has already mentioned this. For example, it's questioned the assumption that white researchers can objectively understand the experiences and meanings of research participants from other ethnic groups. And not only is this an impossibility, as the identities recognised to be significant multiply, but it discounts the possibility of human identification across difference. We can't match every um, researcher to the groups that we're trying to study. There are too many. And um, I think it's also a very pessimistic kind of view of the limitations of the researcher's uh, capacity for identification. But nonetheless, it is to be expected that an all-white English group of observers, which is what one might, one might find in terms of people who are trained and ready to do this task, that they are in danger of misrecognizing aspects of mothering practices in our Bangladeshi and African Caribbean groups, and indeed the white British mothers um, group as well. And this, is, this links to what Anne has just been saying about the power relations of research and the importance of actually recognizing um, their effects. So we're aiming for a mixed ethnic and cultural group of observers, which will add richness of insight into the seminar group. And we will also use the seminar to explore the subjective reactions of observers to culturally unfamiliar and racialized mothering practices. And this, we hope, can add another layer to the recognition of subjectivity in research and of its, and its, and its use, um, but its impartial use. Okay, so now I want to try and uh, do the task that <laughs> Anne left me with when she handed it over to me and say something ab about, about the approaches of the three of us. You will, anyway, by now have gained some impressions about um, both the similarities and differences amongst our three approaches. 
We share a broadly psychosocial relational approach to studying identity and identities. And as you will have seen, because we're not all trained as psychologists for nothing, we also, also share a serious interest in the power of methods to produce different knowledges. Our theoretical differences, fruitfully echoing widespread debates in British social sciences, revolve around the status of reality and its accessibility through the interpretation of talk and practice. And that's one we've spared you today. We just uh, decided to leave that one aside. Uh, um, they also um, engage the issue of the weight we place on conscious willed action or unconscious dynamic influences. Also, if and how subject positions both originate and are expressed in discourse, the place of coherence, or at any rate the struggle for coherence, in the multiplicity of positions that make up our identities. All these are issues around which we um, debate and differ and dialogue. And they also find expression methodologically, as I think um, uh, the contrast between what Margie was saying and what I've just been saying has illustrated quite, quite carefully, quite powerfully. So for example, whether and how to go beyond the text of an interview to interpret what, if anything, may lie below the surface of someone's talk. Anne's phrase, dialoguing within differences, is a very concise summary of the flavour of our intellectual engagement. So, where does that leave us? We've certainly made different journeys, and it is to the same place, institutionally speaking. We don't expect, however, to arrive anywhere, anywhere definitive, let alone the same intellectual place. But the dialogue helps us to keep intermixing our identities and our ideas. You have to watch this one quite carefully. We have our colleague in the psychology discipline, Graham Pike, to thank for this. Uh, he's an expert in face recognition techniques. <laughs> thank you very much, all of you. However, Margie. 
So first of all, and I know this echoes all of us, I want to thank all the people who made it here today, snow and all. And particularly, maybe just not just in my case, but quite a few from up north, including my neighbour, Lynn Froggett, from whom I borrowed my shoes today. <laughs> <laughs> but who would prefer to be known in this context, I presume, more seriously. She's a close intellectual colleague of mine in the psychosocial field, so I have access to her excellent library just down the track from where I live in in the Pennines. And I'd also like to say thank you to three people with whom I have lodged at different points in my OU career while I'm in Milton Keynes. Mary Cater, thank you, Wendy Stainton Rogers, who's also here, and John Zarnecki. They've all provided me with a lot of hospitality and my accommodation. There are some people at the OU who've been extremely helpful um, in, in this event, Sally Eaton especially, Lydia Eaton for some picture research, and now I would like to thank Kwame Akufo in particular for letting me use the Afrikaat images that you've seen and bringing up the canvases which you were admiring um, over in the break. And, and the, the, they've provided such a striking backdrop um, to this event. Some of these canvases are for sale, by the way, and a donation <laughs> will go to a, the, a charity for children in Africa, um, a small donation from each sale. Um, I'd also like to say thank you. My mother and my sister are both here. And thanks to both of you and my father who couldn't be here. I made a great deal of mothering in my talk, as you've all heard. And I even said a bit regarding fathering in identity formation. But I didn't have time to mention my developing interest in siblings and their um, connection to identities. <laughs> and so just wait, Jane. <laughs> Um, but um, that's been inspired by Juliet Mitchell's book on siblings. Thank you, Juliet. I can't see you, but you're somewhere here. And, um, and I intend to pursue with a couple of my colleagues at Leaston, possibly more in the faculty, Melanie Mousner and Helen Lucy, um, who are doing work, work in that area. My partner and co-researcher, Tony Jefferson, couldn't be here. He couldn't get back from Copenhagen. And my daughter, Ella, couldn't get back from Paris. But they're both here in spirit. And certainly, given my theory of relationality, they're also inside my mind. <laughs> and my friends in the faculty are just too numerous to mention. And it's just been such a delight to see you all here. And the important thing about working here is that you, my friends in the faculty, make coming to work an inviting prospect every time. Thank you. Over to you. I've mentioned that lots of people already, people in psychology departments, in the faculty, and in the wider university, who have been really important intellectual influences, but also very supportive friends. So I just want to pick out a few people now who I've not had a chance to mention, uh, who I'd like to just publicly acknowledge for their support through both difficult and good times. So Linda Finley and Noel Wilder, Steve Rasher, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but sent us a wonderful bunch of flowers with a card saying, women never underestimate them. <laughs> Karen Littleton, who I think is here. Uh, Charlotte Burke, who I'm really pleased could be here as well. Imogen Taylor, Cherry Potter, uh, and, and so on. I also want to just say a very public thanks to Kerry Carter, who's the most fantastic program administrator for the ESRC program. And we all of us want to thank John Hunt, who's very self-effacingly in the corner there, who actually did this incredible set of PowerPoints. In fact, we'll just put up your, there we go. It's <laughs> <laughs> this amazing job for us.
Okay, I think they're not all are about the past, but they have to be about the future as well, and it's about building new futures. And I want to just acknowledge my son, Sam Wetherill, who's here, who's just about to go off to university himself, and who vows that he's never, ever going to be an academic. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope he's going to change his mind, but I suspect he, he never will. But I just want to publicly apologise to him for all the sort of postponements of his 18 years, all the, let me just finish this sentence, you know, this telephone call, this paragraph, this email, and so on. And my future also lies with my partner, Pete Williams, who's here today also. And I just want to say to you, Pete, that I'm immensely looking forward to the new life that we're building together. Well, given our introduction, you won't be surprised to hear that we found it really difficult to pare down our acknowledgement so that we could each have had half an hour to say thank you to the people that we want to. My partner, Charlie Owen, advised me to remember that this is not the Oscars when I was... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to keep it short, relatively short. And thank people by identifying a few institutions. So, I mean, in a way that's unfortunate because there are many people and many of you here who I would like to thank personally for, for your support and for being such good friends. But anyway, let's start and see where I get to by nine o'clock. Um, St Andrews, first of all, it provided me not only with the discipline of psychology, but also with some lifelong friendship. And I'd like to thank Anne and David Powell, who are here, and Robin Wren, who tolerates my poor email communication from New Jersey. Half of my consciousness, my feminist consciousness raising group also came from St Andrews. The other half came from Manchester. I owe a huge debt to Thomas Corrin Research Unit, both academically and to the many friends, several of them here, thank you to them, the many friends that I made there in what I now see were golden spaces of morning coffee, lunch shared, and afternoon tea, as well as yoga, that Barbara Chizard instituted. I have, however, to mention three people in particular, Barbara Chizard, who moved from being my boss to being my mentor and friend, and Peter Moss and Julia Brennan, who nurtured my work. And the rest of you who are here, and some who are not here, I genuinely um, really appreciate you. In the rest of the Institute, Janet Holland, Sue Sharp, Phil Cohen and Phil Salmon have all been invaluable as colleagues and friends. Moving on, Ros Gill, Karen Henwood, and Corinne Square enriched my Brunel experience. And Stephen Frost, Rob Patman, and Anne Richards, and Caroline Kelly, who's now a colleague here, require special thanks from Birkbeck. I won't pick out people from the, the Tavistock and Joseph Roundtree Foundation who have really enjoyed getting to know, but I like to, having said I won't pick out particular people, thank Charlotte Burke again and Jenny Altshuler, who are here for many engaged, happy conversations. Mary McLeod from NSTI, National Family Parenting Institute, I think also deserves special mention. Other institutions have become homely for me, and I'm not going to pick out people from them, but Lynn Sherping and Umeå University in Sweden, Roskilde University in Denmark, and Nova Research Centre in, in um, Norway, I almost forgot where it was for a moment, <laughs> have all been really important. And my reading group, over the last 10 years, have become a really comfortable institution in my life and have kept me reading novels, which I, when I otherwise wouldn't have done. 
to thanks to them. It's become commonplace in the changing British family state to say that friends are the new family. And this is true for many of my friends. But thanks especially to Avatar Bra and to Gail Lewis and their partners, Pervais Nazir and Lillian Landor, for years of support. I want also to thank my colleagues here at the Open sorry, I'm going to not going to cry, it's not the Oscars. <laughs> my colleagues here at the Open University, and again, like Wendy, I won't name them all, but but thank you very much for making it, as Wendy said, such a pleasant place to come to work to. What did what did, did you say? <laughs> I wouldn't be here if Charlie Owen had not put feminist principles into practice in his commitment to childcare and shopping over the last 21 years. And I mean shopping for food, I mean, I mean not shopping for clothes. <laughs> as well as doing secondary analyses of large-scale data sets for me and the statistical analyses that I need, even though I often eschew quantitative work. So thanks very much to Charlie for so much that I can't actually mention. None of it personal, I just mean... <laughs> Sorry. Um, Aisha Phoenix is both enormous fun and an able critic of my work and my everyday practices. The world would be a much greyer place without her and I'm delighted that I gave birth to her. I think I can be proud of myself too. <laughs> thank you, Aisha. Wendy and Margie, I want to thank you. can see that they've been enormous fun to work with and, and you know, it's been great actually having them as colleagues. They've already thanked all of you for coming and for your support. And I'd like to echo those sentiments and to mention as well Mira Yuval Davis, who has not been any of the institutions that uh, I've worked in, but who has been a supportive colleague, and Rina Hafnani, who's also a good friend. But I'd like to end by talking about Stephen Frosch, who I mentioned briefly just before, but who I really want to, to give some more fulsome praise to. Stephen is a consummate academic. He's been in the psychology department at Birkbeck College for many years. He's innovated many psychosocial courses. He publishes prolifically and has an incisive mind. My writing has undoubtedly benefited from his wry attention to my use of jargon. He's also a generous academic. He's fulsome in his praise of work that other people do and that he likes. And the three of us have really enjoyed engaging with him over the years and expect to enjoy engaging with you some more, Stephen. He's kindly agreed to say something nice about us this evening. <laughs> Professor Stephen Frosch. Um, this is going to be a mutual admiration. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm not just honoured, but really touched to have been asked to give a short response to Anne, Margie, and Wendy's presentation today. Honoured because they, as a, threesome, as a threesome and as individuals, they are amongst the leading social psychologists of this period. They give luster to British psychology, and of course also to the Open University, and at least in Anne and Wendy's case, to that other underfunded bastion of part-time higher education, Birkbeck College. I'm very sorry not to be able to say the same thing about Margie, but at least 
she never left Birkbeck College. <laughs> um, and I'm still working through the trauma of Wendy and Anne having left, and, Anne, and Wendy in particular left a long time ago. Um, I'm also touched because to be included in this relational network as a respondent is to be invited to be part of something vibrant and warm, unafraid of difference. I'm not, after all, a woman professor of psychology, even in these performative times. Um, outward reaching, personal, challenging, tolerant, and fun. Uh, this list of adjectives is not usually applied in academic settings, um, but I think you can see from the warmth of feeling um, that there is in this audience today how well it is applied to these three. The immense intellectual power and the contribution that Margie, Wendy and Anne have made is probably known to all of you, though with characteristic modesty, I think they've only hinted at its far-reachingness in their presentation today. Indeed, I think the presentation itself is highly characteristic in taking the real conditions of personal and social life and subtly, lightly and profoundly drawing out from it a web or a cat's cradle of provocative theory with extensive intellectual and practical implications. Each of these stylish professors plays an integral part in this collaborative venture. Wendy is one of the founders of the psychosocial scene in British psychology, which I think traces back to her time at Birkbeck. I met her there in the mid-1980s, having read her PhD, in which she had pioneered a form of psychoanalytically inflected discourse analysis that later became her 1989 book, Subjectivity and Method in Psychology. Actually, I've always thought it was very lucky that I met her after she'd done that work, because if you don't know it, the work itself was based on an in-depth study of the personal and romantic relationships of her friends. Uh, she still has those friends, or, or most of them, or maybe some of them. <laughs> I'm glad that, anyway, I, I avoided that. Um, this book, this book, I mean, she did read their diaries and took them away for a group and all that sort of thing. You should read. There's a lovely bit in that where she measures the, um, the, the time, was it the time that, of speech or something or other, because she was terribly anxious that just writing about her friends would never give her a PhD, so she had to put some numbers in somewhere. <laughs> um, but anyway, she got the PhD and it's a beautiful thing. Um, this book, actually, that's the Subjectivity and Method book, established her as a thinker of considerable sophistication, although I have to say one thing I've always held against Wendy is that she is partly responsible for the introduction of the word imbrication into British social psychology. <laughs> and I noticed that Maggie used it. <laughs> anyway, it also showed, apart from her sophistication, the book also showed her practicality, perhaps deriving from the changing plugs element of her personality. This practicality is a theme which is also evident in her later book with Tony Jefferson, doing qualitative research differently, a book much beloved of psychology graduate students, now seeking defended subjects throughout the land. <laughs> um, Margie, Margie is simply one of the cleverest and nicest people I know. She burst on the scene with the book Discourse and Social Psychology, which must count as one of the most influential social psychology texts ever, and which established her straight away as a profoundly intellectual thinker 
who could draw on diverse and difficult concepts from a range of disciplines and apply them to some of the most central and pragmatic aspects of people's lives. Studies of racism and masculinity and an immense impact on thinking about identities have followed. In addition, through her joint editorship, editorship of the British Journal of Social Psychology, and now in the directorship of the major ESRC program on identities, uh, social identities and social action, she's had a hand in reshaping the direction of the discipline in the UK and abroad. If this makes her sound intimidating, well, that's fair enough. But I don't think she sees herself that way. And her thoughtfulness is something that draws everybody to her. I would defer to her in pretty well everything, which has made arguing with her very hard to do. <laughs> and then there's Anne, who worked closely with me for several happy, at least for me, years at Birkbeck. And she consistently, with her characteristic poise, I don't know how many of you have noticed this, but Anne sits more straight-backed <laughs> than anyone, anyone you'll ever see. And what I've noticed is that when people sit near her, they all sit better themselves. <laughs> Anyway, uh, she has documented, probed, collected narratives of nationhood, gender and race, and in the process reformulated all our thinking on the social construction of identities. From young mothers, through black, white or mixed race, and the edited book Shifting Identities, Shifting Racism, and then in our jointly authored book Young Masculinities, Anne's voice has been one which drew scrupulous attention to the detail of what people try to articulate has made new and generally subjugated voices heard. To the extent that social psychology has turned its attention to these institutionalized subjugations and can be seen as one of those responsible for a highly significant move forward. She too is immensely popular. I once walked up the stairs of the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine after lunch with her and she was stopped so often by people who wanted to kiss her that, <laughs> that I had to demand a kiss myself because <laughs> I felt so left out. All three of our not-so-new professors have had a profound impact on psychology, and as a group they represent a force characterised by social and political engagement, absolute integrity in their research, an eye to interdisciplinary engagement, and a capacity for long-term work. They're also all inspiring teachers, and I know from direct experience with graduate students of theirs just how much they are loved as supervisors. In their threesome presentation, Anne talked about a commitment to collaboration, a recognition that minds are distributed and relational. Margie spoke of the processes of psychosocial convergence. Wendy told us about the collaboration between them. We talk about our lives and those of others we jointly know, she said, an underrepresented vehicle for social psychological understanding. What must be appreciated is that despite intellectual differences, and the ones between um, Wendy and Margie have been highlighted today, despite the great emphasis on individual achievement in academia, and despite the sometimes fissiparous tendencies of psychology departments torn between the big money and scientific prestige of neuroscience and the still small voice of relational thinking, these three leading academics live the values they express in their work. They're deeply collegial, letting their experiences and intimacies give shape and weight to their research agendas. Look, for example, at the proportion of their publications that are co-authored with people who are genuinely their friends. 
What drives them is this relational urge, this wish to make something <coughs> qualitatively better in our capacity to understand one another and to resist the small and large oppressions from which people suffer. Anne spoke, <coughs> excuse me, Anne spoke of her position as the only black student in a large class exposed to the racist elements of psychological science. Wendy spoke of the impact of becoming a mother, something which we all know looms very large in the histories of Anne and Margie too. All three are deeply invested in and produced by feminism. There's the lives of commitment, <coughs> excuse me, there's the lives of commitment and contact. And what is so impressive is the stunning way in which this is also true of their outstanding work.